Welcome to the Radical Imagination Podcast, where we dive into the stories and solutions that are fueling change. I'm your host, Angela Glover Blackwell. Today, we look at an idea that has become increasingly popular in recent years. It's called universal basic income. In case you've never heard of it, it's where the government agrees to pay a minimum salary to each and every member of society, regardless of earnings or employment. No strings attached. In most versions of the idea, it's a relatively small amount, maybe $500 or $1,000 a month. And the purpose is to give people more of a safety net, especially in a time of technological advancements that threaten to make a lot of jobs obsolete. Earlier this year, the city of Stockton in California's Central Valley became the first in the nation to try this out. It would involve a privately funded 18-month initiative that will provide over 100 of its residents with $500 per month. There's a lot of interest in this experiment, as well as other developments in Stockton. But things didn't always look this promising. Stockton, California has officially gone bust. Judges ruling the failing city can enter bankruptcy. During the 2008 recession, the city of just over 300,000 people made headlines when it declared bankruptcy. They have the second highest rate of foreclosures in the country. And now Stockton is on the verge of becoming the largest city in the U.S. to declare bankruptcy. Stockton Mayor Michael Tubbs was in his late teens during that time. Since those difficult years, the city has come a long way toward financial recovery. And in 2016, at 26, Tubbs became the first black mayor in Stockton's history and the youngest mayor of any large U.S. city. Mayor Tubbs joins us today to talk about growing up in Stockton, becoming mayor, and his guaranteed income initiative, the Stockton Economic Empowerment Demonstration, also known as SEED. Mayor Tubbs, Welcome to Radical Imagination. Thanks for having me. For those who are not familiar with it, tell us about Stockton. So Stockton, California is home. It's a city in the Central Valley, as you mentioned. It's about 320,000 people. You can get more people in Stockton than Newark, New Jersey, about as much as Cincinnati, about as much as St. Louis. It's the 60th or 61st largest city in our country. It's incredibly diverse. Um, The oldest Sikh temple in North America on this continent is in South Stockton. At one point, Stockton had more Filipino people living here than anywhere else in the world outside the Philippines. It's a diverse city where people from across the world in this country have come looking for a better life. Before we dive into the idea of universal basic income, I want to go back to how it all started for you. What was life like for you and your family while you were growing up? Um, so Stockton has five or six focus areas. Um, in terms of areas that the police department have identified as areas that have historically and currently have high rates of, of crime, which means they also have high rates of poverty, low rates of opportunity, um, et cetera. And I lived in five of those six areas growing up. My mother, single mother, hardworking woman, had me as a teenager. Uh, but we grew up in poverty, then we worked our way up to the working poor. So a lot of the neighborhoods I grew up in were neighborhoods that we talk about, neighborhoods that have more liquor stores and grocery stores, or check-cashing places in banks, um, but great people and people who were fighting every single day and still believed in the idea that if you worked hard, if you got your education, um, you could be successful. And that's kind of where I got a lot of my ethos from, from seeing people work two jobs, their sons and daughters could play um, sports or go to ballet or have all these different cultural en- en- enrichment 
the high school I went to was majority Latino. 70% of my high school was Latino. And I think the diversity I grew up with also helped me understand that just because I didn't experience something personally, it's still very easy to empathize <laughs> with other humans and common humanity. So I'm, I'm very thankful um, for my upbringing here in the city of Stockton, because when we talk about macro issues from basic income, which we'll get into later, or even micro issues in terms of closing down liquor stores and opening health clinics, as we did when I was on city council, it's all deeply personal. It's all informed with what some would call a, a troubled or, or a difficult upbringing. What do you remember about that time when the recession hit and bankruptcy was declared? So in 08, when the recession hit, right before the city was booming, so we were building an arena and a ballpark and a promenade where people could park their yachts. And I remember in high school saying, who got a yachts in Stockton? I was like, we got yachts in Stockton? That's, that's cool, I guess. And then I remember, I wrote one of my college essays about it, and it said lowest in literacy, highest in crime. Because yeah, we had just began to do our spikes in homicides, and we were also ranked the 99th out of the 100 metro areas in terms of literacy rates of our population. And then... That fall, I entered in the White House. One of my cousins ended up being victim of, of, of a homicide in Stockton. And then I remember the next year, the conversation being around bankruptcy, laying off cops. We can't pay for this. We can't pay for that. I remember it almost came out of nowhere. But I also remember, particularly when I was running for city council and talking to people, they would say things like, bankruptcy, we've been bankrupt. And I realized that for a lot of folks in neighborhoods, they were saying there was almost a moral bankruptcy that allowed for decisions to get to the point now where we have to declare municipal bankruptcy and that we just allow young men of color to die with impunity, with not an outcry that we allow neighborhoods to be disinvested in. And that's kind of what rooted our campaign for city council is really this idea of like bankruptcy is a symptom. We're declaring a fiscal bankruptcy, but it's a symptom of a deeper moral and community bankruptcy and how do we come together to address it. It's a little surprising that having been exposed to Stanford and all the opportunities that came with that, that you decided to come back to Stockton. Tell me about that and mm. how your mom felt about it and what kind of decision making that took. Yeah, well, actually growing up because of the neighborhoods I described and, and some of the poverty, the narrative was always to be successful meant you left Stockton. So it was deeply ingrained that folks who stayed in Stockton because they had no choice. Some of the narrative was that maybe they weren't smart, maybe they weren't talented, that Stockton was a dead end. So I positioned myself to always have strong Stockton pride and be proud of where I'm from and to just shout out from the mountains, I'm from Stockton. But I never thought I would live in Stockton in adulthood. And that was the plan, especially when I got into Stanford. And my mom said, oh, yes, hallelujah, all the sacrifices we made, the, the, the double shifts and things of that sort are, are worth it. Um, Could I go to school like Stanford and have opportunity open? And then it was also a sense of like duty or calling and that there's no way a lot of things that have happened for me are so improbable. There's no way it was just for me to be comfortable or just for me to be individually successful. I remember sharing that with my mom and she was like, oh, no, you don't you've done enough. You've started summer programs while in school. You could come back and visit. You could you do motivational speeches here. But and she said something. She said. If anyone else had the opportunities you had, they wouldn't come back. And I was like, that may be true, mom, but that's also maybe part of the problem. She rolled her eyes and said, man, are you supposed to go make some money? But then once she figured out I was serious and my mind was made up. 
She was on the campaign, knocking on doors, <laughs> posting signs. Well, out with the incumbent and in with the future, Michael Tubbs wins Stockton's mayoral race in a landslide, and the 26-year-old becomes one of the youngest mayors in the country. Tell me what it felt like when you actually won the election, being the first black mayor of this city, and coming into it at a time when it was still emerging from bankruptcy. It felt like the city had really turned a page in the corner because the city's only 10% African-American, which means it was a multi-ethnic coalition that elected me, but also vindicated, I think, the work we did as a council member. So I remember being super excited, and some people tried to be sad because it was also the day of the presidential election. And I looked at everyone, I said, look, today, I'm happy. Like, I, we worked hard for this. Like, for once, Stockton's leading and <laughs> showing what can happen. We're a place of hope. I think my wife posted, tonight we celebrated, tomorrow we mourn on, on her Facebook. We understand that nationally, but thankfully in this case, due to federalism at the local level, there's, there is a lot of a time in control. So we're, we've been able to protect our immigrants. We've been able to really invest in the poorest folk in our community versus the richest folk. So I felt just super excited, but also just knew it was a big job. It's a lot of work to do. So I've been like, okay. How are we going to get some things done? <laughs> it's a lot on your shoulders, and I really appreciate that you're ready to stretch and be creative and ask, how do we address these issues? What needs to happen? Not what can we do within the meager resources we have, but what needs to happen? And now that you're mayor, you've put the Guaranteed Income Initiative at the top of your agenda. How does this initiative work, and how do you think it's going to benefit the Stockton residents? What's interesting is that it it has through community and national interest, it has emerged as the top of the agenda. I said, you guys, we have eight years max. Time is ticking. And the biggest issue we face in the city is poverty. Poverty is the root cause of everything else we're trying to solve for. So what is a policy that we can do to really address poverty? I said, and give me crazy things. And then my staff, true to form, came back with the idea of a guaranteed income. And I was interested because I have remember reading about basic income or guaranteed income from studying Dr. King in college. If the Negro is to gain the economic security that he needs, now one of the answers, it seems to me, is a guaranteed annual income, a guaranteed minimum income for all people and for all families of our country. I remember reading Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos, our community, my freshman year in college. There's a section towards the end where he says, we try to solve poverty by these other means, education, housing, healthcare, which are definitely important and definitely need to be solved for. But he said, I think for poverty, guaranteed income. But what he called for was something in true King fashion that was even more stretched of the radical imagination. He said, not $500 a month, but something pegged at the national median income and keeping up with inflation. So every year it, it would increase to provide just a floor for every, everybody who lives in the United States. This need and this something which I believe will go a long, long way toward dealing with the Negroes' economic problem and the economic problem with many other poor people confronting our nation. But I was always fascinated with how this part of his legacy or his thinking was left out and, and the cause of that. And always thinking it'd be really cool one day to be part of that discussion. 
And luckily, at the same time we were having that discussion, I met the folks at the Economic Security Project, their initial funder for the seed program, who said they were looking for a city to pilot basic income. Essentially, 130 families have been selected um, for 18 months. They're given $500 a month on prepaid debit cards. And these families, they were selected randomly with our research partners in a way that they reflect the seed's diversity. So there's Black people. But there's also Latino people and Asian people and white people and old people and young people and students and working people and non-working people and unemployed people. And the only criterion was you had to live at or below the city's median. So there's people who make more than the city's median and people that make below. What I've learned over the past 18 months is that the majority of people are struggling in our current economic system, that we shouldn't put too much energy around shooting down possible solutions, but spend all our energy putting everything on the board to say, how do we solve for this problem where one in two Americans can afford one $400 emergency or where wages have risen 6% between 1979 and 2013, like where people are working themselves to death, literally, and can't afford necessities like rent. So I'm, I'm excited about the pilot as one of several things we're doing in the city to really think about how do we make sure the economy works for everyone and how do we make sure that someone's humanity or their dignity isn't just attached to what they produce, but their dignity is inherent. And because they have inherent dignity, they should have the opportunity to contribute. It's an exciting initiative. $500. Why that amount? It's so funny. I Literally, I'm pretty sure I did a back-of-the-envelope calculation around how much I pay for utilities a month. <laughs> it was about $500. And given that it, it's privately funded, we wanted the resources to stretch as many people as possible. Um, but we also wanted to do something that was meaningful. And then the stat that one in two Americans can afford one $400 emergency, we were like, okay. And $500 also because it's similar to what some folks get in their earned income tax credit. And exactly how were the people selected? You talked about the diversity, but did you just randomly get that full spread? No, we have a um, great evaluation team um, led by Dr. Stacia West at the University of Tennessee and Dr. Amy Castro-Baker from the um, University of Pennsylvania. And they developed an, an algorithm that identified houses within the census tracts that were added below the city's median. And we sent like 3,000 of those envelopes out. Uh, I think a thousand responded back. From that a thousand, they removed names but kept some of the demographic information and kind of spit out something that was more, most reflective of the city, um, given the sample size. Coming up on Radical Imagination, Mayor Tubbs talks about the challenges he faced when getting his guaranteed income initiative off the ground. Stay with us. More to come when we get back. Are you someone who wants to create a society where all can participate and prosper? Visit our website at radicalimagination.us to take action and connect with campaigns and organizations around issues covered by this podcast. It's crucial that we get support to continue to lift up stories and solutions to address our most pressing problems. To do this, we need you to tell your friends and family about Radical Imagination. Ask them to subscribe, share, and comment on their chosen podcast platform. You can also find us on the Race and Wealth Podcast Network. Like what you've heard today? Tell us about it. 
Go to Apple Podcasts to rate and review Radical Imagination. And thank you. And we're back with Stockton Mayor Michael Tubbs. When we left off, we had talked about the thought and reasoning behind the SEED initiative. But could you talk about the challenges that you have faced in getting the support you needed to get the SEED initiative off the ground? That was a challenge. I think another challenge was just stretching the imagination. This idea that we can trust people to make good decisions. And also just really battling these tropes we have of working poor and poor people as dumb or as not talented material circumstances of their economic life are solely the products of their decisions. And really having to push back on that and saying, well, no, it's not about, th- it's about us. Do you trust yourself? Do you trust yourself to do good things with $500 most of the time? Because sometimes you might want to buy a TV. And sometimes you might want to buy some Jordans so you look nice. But most of the time you're going to make sure your bills are paid. And most of the time you're going to make sure you're doing all the things you can do. Um, so it's just really having the conversation that, because we have these really strongly held this American ethos, which I think is good, where we really believe, and I wish it was true, and it should be true. I believe it should be true that if you work, if you work hard, you should be able to pay for necessities. You should be able to be successful. But in our current social structure, that's just not a reality for millions and millions of people. Um, and having that conversation and leading into it was a little bit scary and difficult, but I, I, I think we're all better for it. Interesting, too, that some of the pushback comes from people who you would think would be just thrilled that there were these experiments going on. Nobel Prize winning economist Paul Krugman, for example, recently told CNBC that universal basic income is not politically feasible. The trouble with UBI is that either it's going to cost an amount that's beyond what I expect to spend to be politically possible in in the next several decades, or it's going to be way inadequate. And so more targeted programs, programs that focus on people with real needs. What do you make of that statement? Do you think you can have both uh, guaranteed income and targeted programs? Absolutely. So I think a guaranteed income is the most politically feasible um, option. Although I think anyone would say with limited resources, we should target them. Um, to folks who who need it the most. But unfortunately, that's not the way our democracy traditionally has worked. But I will also say I feel, I look at this as an investment. I know my friends who do invest, they say when they invest in the short term, it looks like they're losing. But in the long term, it reaps huge dividends. I think something like a guaranteed income should be viewed in the same way. There's a cost attached to it, but there's also ways to pay for it through data taxes, robot tax, complex financial transaction tax, wealth tax, carbon tax. The the, the issue is, is the political will, in my opinion. But it's an investment. And think of the dividends in terms of efficiencies, in terms of people being able to go back to work and contribute. People have more money to spend. Kids are healthier and in school. People are taking better care of themselves. I think there's a there, it's it's a real opportunity to really invest in the foundation of our democracy, which is not our military, which is not our buildings. It's the people, like the American people. The good news is that as you're doing this experiment in Stockton, you're not alone. Uh, I understand that Jackson, Mississippi has rolled out a similar program with a small group of women, a black women who are very low income. Alaska, on the other hand, has been giving its residents annual checks of from $1,000 to $3,000 for decades. The money comes from the revenue that the state receives from oil companies. 
And Finland recently concluded a $22.7 million universal basic income experiment, and thousands of people on low-income salaries in Ontario, Canada, were given up to $13,000 per individual as part of a year-long pilot program there. So there have been opportunities to see how does this work. Have you been able to learn from any of those? Yeah, what's been most fascinating to me is the one in Finland, because when it first ended, people were like, the experiment failed. But when you look at it and, and you contextualize it in terms of Finland being a Scandinavian country, meaning their safety net is much more robust than ours, uh, from healthcare to affordable housing, childcare, et cetera. Number two, given the context that demographic targeted were unemployed young men between 18 to 29, which for any social, <laughs> social science intervention is the most difficult group to, to move. People were happier. People trusted government more. They were more willing to engage in the democratic process or the governing process. I expect the positive benefits seen in some of these studies magnified in the U.S. context. Have you already figured out how you'll measure impact, how you'll know whether or not it was a success? For the study part, it's threefold. Number one, just being able to answer the questions, what do people do with the money? Um, Number two, how does it impact income volatility? I had no idea how from month to month a lot of people's incomes change in terms of what's needed. One month I need extra money for this expense, one month I need this for car, et cetera, et cetera. And how does a basic income help kind of navigate that? And then number three, they're looking at health impacts. How does it affect feelings of stress, of anxiety, um, and also feelings of connection to, to community? And for me, I think doing the project and socializing the conversation um, and really forcing us to dig deep is if you hate basic income or what, what are you bringing to the table? Because what I hate is poverty. And what I hate is that people are working themselves to death and can't afford necessities. It sounds like you can envision a universal basic income becoming something that we're doing on the national scale. Do you see a pathway to get there? Absolutely. Because I think poverty, economic insecurity is bipartisan. If the stories come back and folks can see themselves reflected, and see that it works, we'll get to a place where we realize that poverty, as Nelson Mandela said, is antiquated. That's something we need to have or we should have in a modern, civilized society because we have the resources to address it. So I'm hopeful that I'll just be alive and I'll do my best to be part of that day where that becomes a reality. I think you're right that radical changes happen when the atmosphere makes us step back and say we have to do something different. And our economy has definitely gotten us to that point. And then the other thing we need is what you just described. We need evidence. And we get evidence because people are willing to take a chance. Is you willing to take a chance of your mayoral leadership in Stockton and say, we're going to try this and see where it goes. And I've found that people who are imagining something different, they often bring what I call a superpower. What's your superpower? I think my superpower is empathy and imagination. And also, I think it's just, I'm just terrified of going to heaven and God saying, well, what did you do? Like, I was very clear. <laughs> when I was naked, did you clothe me? If I was hungry, if you feed me, as you do the least of these you're doing to me. And I'm fearful of not having a good answer to that question. I want my answer to be, I did everything I possibly could. Well, I'm glad that you bring your imagination and your empathy to the city of Stockton and to the nation and now to the world. Mayor Tubbs, thank you for speaking with us. Uh, Thank you for having me. Michael Tubbs is the current mayor of Stockton, California. Universal basic income is a big idea, but not a new one. 
Dr. King understood long ago that we need to create an economic floor so everyone in this country can live in dignity. He and many today embrace a universal approach, believing that programs designed for all are more popular and have more political support than targeted strategies. But opting for a universal income guarantee doesn't mean wasting vast amounts of money, as some might assume. The need is great. As we heard today, more than 40% of adults can afford a $400 emergency, and more than a third of Americans live in or near poverty. Universal basic income builds stability for families and communities. It relieves the economic anxiety that has become toxic in our country, and it instills hope for the future. It reminds us that government can tackle society's biggest problems with imagination, compassion, and moral courage. Radical Imagination was produced by Futuro Studios for PolicyLink. The Futuro Studios team includes Marlon Bishop, Andreas Caballero, Bruxandra Guidi, Stephanie LeBeau, and Jeannie Montalvo. The PolicyLink team includes Rachel Gashinga, Glenda Johnson, Fran Smith, Jacob Gulkosian, and Millie Hawk Daniel. Our theme music was composed by Taka Yusasawa and Alex Zagura. I'm your host, Angela Glover-Blackwell. Join us again next time. And in the meantime, you can find us online at RadicalImagination.us. Remember to subscribe and share. Next time on Radical Imagination, Georgetown University's shameful history around slavery and the call for reparations. Here at Georgetown are waking up to the fact that a solid majority of students are willing to pay for the school's past sins. They say they believe it's a moral obligation. That's next time on Radical Imagination.